Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 81 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 81, we are going to talk a little bit about the PNW District Meet number two that was just this past weekend. Um, I was one of the quiz masters and Scott was the statistician. So we've got some uh, cool, interesting topics and sort of fallout from the meet that was. And then we're going to be talking around some sort of tangentially related issues uh, coming out of some things that happened at the meet in terms of just sort of general theory, uh, both for quizzers and quiz masters. We want to talk a bit about the Rulebook Reorg project. We've hinted about this in the past, but we want to kind of dive a little bit into what the current status of the project is, and it's pretty exciting. It, it, it seems really dry and boring on the surface, but it, there's actually a lot of future, like not a lot, I mean a huge a lot of future value that can come uh, from what's happening right now with this project. So we want to talk about what is going on there and what to expect in the coming weeks and months. We have a, um, a very interesting score rules change proposal that came in from uh, somebody in P&W, a longtime uh, quizzer and international quizzer and, and uh, uh, coach and, and official. And uh, the idea is uh, he's called it hot streak and it's pretty interesting. And so Scott and I are going to be talking about that and a few other things that may be tangentially related thereof. So Let's start off by talking about the PNW district meet number two. Uh, so before I dive into sort of my reflections on it, Scott, did you have any sort of high level uh, reflections on it from being a statistician? Um, the, I mean, the scores looked fairly similar to what we normally see. The scores might be a little bit lower, um, given that we're just counting prelims at the moment. And so if for just counting prelims, the scores probably would be a little bit low. Um, nothing else too crazy on individual stats that stuck out to me. We had a 90 at meet one, but we did not have a 90 at meet two. We had a one error meet, which is not terribly uncommon to have through prelims. Um, the teams were kind of interesting because the top three teams through prelims finished in sixth, eighth, and ninth. Uh, and so we had a lot of shakeup in the semifinals quizzes, which I think is a fun thing to have happen. And that's, I think that's all that I can think of. Yeah. Well, it was a, it was a really fun meet uh, to participate in as a quiz master. And uh, so it was great. And it was of course great to see virtually everybody and to chat with uh, folks again after, I don't know, however many weeks it's been since district meet number one, there were two things that were for me in any way, fairly sad. Um, I mean, I certainly still had a lot of fun, but two sad sort of things. Number one, I never, I didn't get a challenge. Uh, I went the entire meet, uh, meet two with no challenges in my room. And actually I, I don't remember, but it's entirely possible. I went all of meet one without a challenge. I hope I'm not forgetting some challenge that did happen. And I'm just, it's not sticking in my head. So if that did happen, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sure your challenge was great, but I just, I'm tired, <laughs> not enough coffee and I don't remember it. Um, but in meet two, I had no challenges and that makes me sad. I really like hearing challenges. I think challenges are one of the more interesting aspects of officiating a, a, a quiz. And I think they're really uh, interesting and cool for quizzers to be involved in. And as a quiz master, they, they help me, um, you know, 
keep accurate and, and, you know, aim for the highest, um, you know, level of quiz mastery. So I was kind of sad not to see any. So if you are in PNW and you're a captain, maybe think about challenging me a little bit more in meet three, obviously, I mean, you don't want to do superfluous challenges or anything like that, but definitely would like to hear more than zero challenges over the course of a meet. The other thing, another zero that was kind of sad is, um, and kind of curious, there were zero marked questions, uh, coming back from the meet. So, you know, we use uh, CBQZ. We have a, an official PNW, uh, question set that, um, you know, uh, Jeremy and his cohorts, uh, put together over the summer or even I think prior to the summer. And, uh, the question sets are, you know, usually of very high quality, which is great. Um, but you know, nobody's perfect. And so generally speaking about, you know, a couple of times a meet, there will be a question across, you know, the three rooms that we have, uh, at our, at our district meets, there's usually a question or two that are, that's kind of like, eh, I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that one. So somebody will mark it. One of the quiz masters will mark it. Well, we haven't had, we didn't have any marked questions. Um, so either that is a testament to the fact that, you know, the question set is really, really of high quality, or maybe all three of us quiz masters just, you know, didn't, mark questions when we should have, but I don't recall seeing a question that, you know, caused me to think about the question. They were all really straightforward, good questions. So, and I don't mean straightforward in the sense that they were all interrogative questions. They were all, you know, the, the usual spread of question types, but, uh, they were all of, of high quality. So, uh, it was a little sad that we don't have a series of, of marked questions for Scott and I to talk about. Uh, based on that meet. But what we do have, however, is something that I ended up, um, there wasn't a challenge on this. This is something that happened in my room, uh, a, a particular question. And I want to, uh, I don't think Scott was, is aware of this and I haven't talked with him a, ahead of time. So it'll be great to get his sort of unvarnished uh, opinion here. Um, it was not challenged and I didn't, I think I ruled correctly, but I am, I'm curious what Scott thinks. So uh, in Matthew, uh, chapter nine, verse 21, uh, that's the verse, uh, I was asking a chapter reference question, chapter only reference as follows, according to Matthew chapter nine, touch what? And the answer is his cloak. And then his is required to be, uh, clarified to Jesus. Well, the quizzer started by quoting, uh, verse 21, but only the first word. And so the quizzer, and I forget who it was, but the quizzer said, she, his cloak, Jesus. So given that scenario, Scott, how would you rule? And you, you had read the whole question, right? Um, did I read the whole question? I don't, I probably did. Um, if I didn't, I would have certainly gotten the word touch out, but maybe not what. So in general, like kind of speaking from a high level, I think you ruled incorrectly because um, you used the word the quizzer started quoting, but I would hesitate to use that wording. The quizzer was responding or the quizzer was answering. Um, and the first thing that they, they said was she, which is not right. That is not what was touched. Um, now, I am very... I am very hesitant to be super nitpicky on pronoun usage. So um, even if the quizzer had said, say, like, 
touch her cloak, which um, is an incorrect pronoun, I would be more inclined to say again and let the quizzer correct it to his cloak and then prompt for pronoun clarification. Even though I think one could easily challenge that her is responding to a person that is clearly not Jesus. And so the quizzer is incorrect. And so I just, pronouns are a really hard thing for me because even, even ones like us and them, if the quizzer misuses those, oftentimes us and them are referring to entirely different groups of people in the context um, that those pronouns are used in, right? Mm -hmm. But it, I don't know, it feels sometimes, I don't know, I, I more like to treat it as the quizzer was misquoting things in a not super incorrect, but I'm going to make you at least get to the, I'm, gonna, I'm sure going to make you get to the right pronoun, but I'm not going to call you incorrect yet, than saying like they gave incorrect information. It feels a little bit harsh to just outright say they gave incorrect information. So you would, would you say that, that a quizzer saying she dot 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 his cloak is incorrect because it's she instead of her cloak? Um, so it's kind of weird because I think there are two ways that I would, there's two ways I think about it. One is the way that I should rule and one is the way that I would rule. Um, the way that I should rule is whether the quizzer said she or her cloak, they're incorrect at that point. I think that's the way I should rule. Um, the way I would rule is whether they said she or her, I would either say again or say nothing. And then once the quizzer said his cloak, I would prompt for pronoun clarification. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's what I ultimately did. Uh, I mean, this kind of also goes back to the whole, there is no such thing as quoting if you provide an incorrect answer, but then the question is how incorrect do you need to be? Right. Um, mm -hmm. so, you know, is, is she said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, Jesus's cloak, um, is that a correct or incorrect answer? Um, can you state that again, what the quizzer's answer was? Yeah. So they basically, they just start quoting verse 21, end at cloak, and then clarify his to Jesus. I think they're fine because they were never answering touch what with she. At the moment they say she disjointed, you as a quiz master cannot... Uh, cannot assume if the quizzer is meaning to give you like what they intend the answer to touch what is, mm -hmm. or if they're meaning to start quoting the verse and just paused, like you can't, you can't make that call. Right. So I exactly. I, I can't make that call. Therefore I have to assume I have to give the, qu the quizzer the benefit of the doubt. No, I think you have to assume the other way. Cause otherwise the quizzer can game you. Eh, maybe, but I mean, I don't know. Like, like, the, the, this starts to get into some really, really subjective sort of you know, problems though, right? So like if you're saying, if I quote verse, if I'm the quizzer and I quote verse 21, starting with she, I get to his cloak, I stop at cloak, I clarify his to Jesus, I'm correct. But then if I start with she and I pause and then I continue, right? Um, she dot, dot, dot said to herself, and then I keep going and do everything else exactly as the way that I did before. Would I be incorrect because I paused? Yeah, I think so. Because if you turn everything into proper nouns, let's say the verse is, um, Peter looked at himself and said, if I only touch James's cloak, I will be healed. Well, then the quizzer could get up there and just say, Peter, and then if the quizzer says you are correct, then they're good. If the quizzer says, oh, I'm sorry, you're incorrect. I was looking for James. They'll be like, well, I was just pausing before I continued quoting the verse. 
And so like they have the ability to answer both of the proper nouns. Well, sure. But then how long is a pause? Right. And this starts to get us into this world of subjectivism. I would much rather uh, basically not say anything at all and let the quizzer either, you know, correct or not correct or, or whatever. Like clearly if the quizzer says she, and that's all they say, they're incorrect, you know, without question. Um, but like the length of a pause gives me, get, gets us right into that huge subjective thing of like, when do I consider that? you know, a pause, if a quizzer starts to say she and like hiccups or something, but I don't notice the hiccup and then starts to continue, but I call them incorrect. Like that's kind of bogus, isn't it? Sure it is. And so the way that I subjectively am applying this, right. Cause it's subjectively written. And I, th- I don't know that you can write this in a way that's both objective and really beneficial to quizzing. Because I think the only really way to get to objective is just require verbatim material. Sure, <laughs> um, sure. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of problems with that. But like basically the way – the where I draw the line is if the way you're answering gives you the opportunity to cycle through incorrect guesses, I am more likely to to say that you – to rule that you have given me incorrect information. Yeah, and I mean I totally get where you're coming from with that and I agree philosophically with that. I just – I don't know how I can get there – with the rule book. I mean, like, and this is kind of, I mean, obviously we're going to be talking about a little bit about the uh, rule book reorg as well, but uh, you know, late, a little bit later on, but I, I get kind of, I would rather have a situation where a quizzer could game me because I feel confident in my ability to shut down gaming more than I have confidence in myself to be able to make a, uh, you know, absolutely universally consistent subjective interpretation. Sure. But I think, I think it's murkier when you say that you can shut down gaming because then you're ascribing intent to the quizzer and, and judging intent versus non-intent. And I'm a lot more uncomfortable doing that than just, I will give the quizzer the benefit of the doubt on the length of pause. But if they clearly just say she and give me a I don't know, to Mississippi or something like I have no need to rush to call them incorrect, but, um, I but think what if it very- was, cl- what if it was clearly obvious during the pause that they were thinking, right? They're not, cause there's a, there's a, there's a, she, and I look at, I'm looking at Scott is Scott, is there, is Scott thinking he's going to rule? And now it I continue matter. versus but- like a, you know, a she, and I'm clearly thinking of like the, the, I'm, I'm, I'm not even caring scott's in a different world than me and right and that doesn't matter at all i don't want to get into the visual of how they are answering the question as part of my ruling yeah and i agree i agree um and i mean the rule book doesn't say this at all right but i mean ideally i i forget how long ago we talked about this but like i'd love a clause in that I can latch on to as a quiz master that says, you know, that, that actually provides the opportunity of quoting, right? Um, the idea of, of saying like, if a quizzer jumps and is able to, with, with however little information I've given out as a quiz master, if they are able to lock into the right verse and quote that verse word perfect, I have such a hard time uh, with the idea of counting them incorrect. Sure. And so I think some sort of very specific clause on top that allows for the pause of any length if they are like, I mean, you could make it bulletproof and just say they have to have quoted it exactly word perfect. Right. I just, um, I think 
the way that that word quoting has been misapplied so often is because the quizzer is clearly in the correct verse, they are deemed to be quoting and thus cannot give incorrect information, which I think is like a, a very, very bad and incorrect interpretation, right? People inferred the opposite of giving an answer as quoting. And so if you're quoting, you can't be incorrect. Um, and so that's why I push back so hard against it. Yeah. And, and I totally agree with you. I mean, I, I, I completely agree the, you know, if, if you're, you're saying there's an answer is such and such fire and such and such water, and you get, you, you're asking for the second such and such, and they say fire, like the, and then they pause and then they keep quoting to get to the the water. It's like, no, they're wrong. Um, they have to be wrong because they have provided an, an incorrect answer. Right. Um, but yeah, and and so this would be like one of those clauses wait, where wait, it's not an incorrect answer; it's incorrect information because there is no concept of like an answer, right? Everything the quizzer is saying is their answer. Okay, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. That's true. They have they have provided wrong a a wrong wrong information to the question asked, right? Um, which well, I guess is... I think it's just incorrect information, and I think there are situations. That, well. I would I would call a quizzer in um, out of context before I I rule that they've given me incorrect information that isn't from the material. Mm-hmm. So I guess I invoke that out of context before I yeah. But I don't think as an answer to the question is like a clause that's considered either. Right, right, and of course we you know we talked about this in the rulebook re- rewrite project. The word question and the word answer are both so hyper overloaded in quizzingdom as to be, you know, almost youth, useless. So part of the rebook, uh, the rulebook reorg project was to get those two terms very, very specifically defined, uh, sort of de-overload them, uh, at least in the, in the first version here. And here's another thing that I'm interested in your thoughts on. For one of the requirements for a quizzer to continue answering is to be not incorrect. I kind of feel like the bar of not incorrect is lower um, than the bar of incorrect. So I think it is easier for me to deem a quizzer to, um, well, no, I say that again. I want to make sure I'm understanding you. I think I said it backwards. Okay. Um, let me restate. Do you think there is a difference between me deeming a quizzer to be not incorrect to not be not incorrect versus deeming a quizzer to be incorrect? Well, there's definitely a difference between not being not correct and being not correct, right? That would sure. just be the logical. But, but I'm saying like the rule book does not say um, the quizzer cannot answer if they have given incorrect information. It says they have to be not incorrect. And I'm right. wondering if you think there's any difference in those two possible statings of it. Okay. So statement one is they are not incorrect. And the other statement is that they are in, well, no, wait, say this. <laughs> I'm confusing myself. Um, say say the two things right? again. Because so um, not incorrect is one. Mm-hmm. The other would be have given incorrect information. See, and, and I think the latter makes the former true. So basically, okay, so they're mutu- mutually exclusive, right? So yeah, like like, like well, maybe. Um, I, mean, I don't know if they're ex- they're equally mutually exclusive, but if you provide incorrect information, you are not you are no longer not incorrect. Let's see how many double negatives we can stack up on this thing. And I think what's confusing is when it says not um, not incorrect, 
it's using that term incorrect as a ruling, right? But right. then the opposite is have given incorrect information, which we know is like one of the things that um, is grounds for being incorrect, but it is not itself a ruling. Right. Yeah, there's both the state of being and the ruling upon that state. So like when, when the quizzer says she pauses for a five count and then continues, I think it is easier for me to deem that they are not not incorrect than for me to say you have given me incorrect information. Hmm. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, this is definitely something I want to be looking into, you know, in V2 or some V next version of the rule book, uh, you know, in terms of this reorg project, because like, to me, it, it's, it's sort of the kind of, it's not exactly the same, but it kind of plays into the idea of a quizzer is, is correct before they're incorrect. Um, we've talked about that concept before. Um, so if a quizzer answers correctly and then says something wrong, they can't be counted wrong because they were correct before they were incorrect. Um, similarly, like I, I know there's nothing in the rule book right now that a lot that, that has a distinction for quoting. Um, but I almost want there to be one for exactly these sorts of things, right? Like, like if a quizzer is able to quote a verse perfectly, um, I, I, I really struggle to, you know, count them incorrect. And I don't know, like, I completely agree with you, whatever we come up with, assuming we do come up with something, it needs to be rock solid objective. Like it needs to be just super black and white. And so like, yeah, saying word perfect, saying it word perfect is absolutely, you know, rock solid black and white. I, I feel that might be a little bit too strict. I would want to go with something that's like, you know, uh, in order, I, I don't know, it, it starts to get really, really convoluted very quickly, but I want to say something like, you know, you could, you know, say a not quite exactly perfect uh, pronoun, or like you could use a synonym for a word, and that's okay, you know, that that kind of stuff, obviously not for a unique word, but but for something else, like that sort of thing. I think there's a way you could make that very, very clear and objective, but whatever it is, it needs to be, you know, absolutely black and white. Now, what would you think of this statement by me? Like when a quizzer, let's say a quizzer is answering a finish the verse and everything that they're saying seems word perfect and the cadence is correct, but you as a quiz master did not hear a word. Now, mm. we both would agree the quiz master cannot count the quizzer correct because they did not hear the word. And we will say like it is the quizzer's responsibility to make themselves clear and heard well, right? Right. Now, in this case, could you say like, it is the quizzer's responsibility to to quote in a jointed enough manner as to not leave ability for the quizmaster to count them wrong. No, because it's too subjective, right? So, like, if if you're quoting really fast and you leave out, or well, okay, let's say you're quoting really fast and you don't leave out a the, but because you're quoting so fast, I don't discernibly hear the the. Right? That's still objective right? I didn't hear the, the, you, you probably said it. I, you know, I, I have a very high level of confidence that you, you said it based on, you know, knowing you and knowing your prep and the fact that you're super confident and you're blitzing through this super fast, but like, I just didn't hear it. Like I, I didn't get, I, I couldn't discern the, the, therefore I have to say again. And then, you know, if you try it again and I, and you run out of time, maybe I can go to the tape recorder and I can hear the, the on the tape recorder. But if I go into that situation and I'm listening to the tape recorder and I can't hear the, the, even on the tape, it's like, even if I'm 90% sure 
you you said the the i can't count you correct because i i'm i'm not i didn't get to that objective standard right the pause thing really makes me nervous because there's no good way to make that objective do you think definitions of appropriate pause times or uh, i guess like what times do you think should be objectively defined like um, if I fulfill the question and an answer information for a reference question, should there be an objective time within which the quiz master has to prompt me, you know, versus an undefined thing in the rule book? Well, actually, there's no mention of the timing. Right. There's no mention of the timing. So, I mean, you're, you're kind of flipping it around now. You know, what, what would be challengeable if, you know, a quiz master is not, you know, Johnny on the spot and you know, ask for a question at the precisely correct time. If there's like a, you know, two second lull, do you have enough to be able to procedurally throw out the question? I think in the current rule book, I don't think you do, um, which I don't like. Um, I, I think you do only if you give additional information after your appropriately lengthed paused, which is not, you know, defined, but I think if you, but how, how would you challenge that though? How, how would, how would you challenge that? I mean, there's nothing in the there, there's nothing you could point to as a quizzer as a captain. There's nothing in the rulebook you can point to to say that the the quizmaster didn't do this one thing here. I would say they have to prompt me when my I fulfilled the requirements and you prompted me too late and it was misleading. You applied the rulebook incorrectly. Yeah, but too late by whose standards, right? Let's say you know. Remember when a quizzer no, answers? It's too late because I I gave you more information. But what happens if you didn't pause? Um, you're right. That's a that's a good one. <laughs> Right. I mean, and then, and of course, in your mind as a quizzer, time runs at a very, very different scale because you, you know, your adrenaline's pumping, you're in the moment that's there. Right. So you might think, well, I paused for two seconds and it turns out it was actually 0.2 seconds. Right. Um, that's a, that's a very normal human, you know, brain thing to do. And so from your perspective as a quizzer, you'd be like, well, I paused, I paused for a huge amount of time and they didn't interrupt me. And then, you know, from the recording, you'd be like, well, it was, it was kind of like a, you know, you breathed in, you know, and that was all the pause that was there. And I was about to, you know, uh, uh, I was about to ask, uh, call the question and, and then you kept going. Right. And it just, I, I, ideally, obviously I want the quiz master to interject and ask for the question as promptly as possible, but I don't think there's anything there that a quizzer can really latch onto unless it's particularly egregious. But even if it's egregious, you could still argue that nothing in the rulebook has been violated. I agree. I agree. It's murky. Um, well, that is no good. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> it is no good. <laughs> um, it, 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 and we definitely need to fix it. Now, how do we fix it from, how do we fix it in a very objective way? Um, you know, and timings become very difficult. You know, like we, we don't have, you know, a bunch of people, an army of people with stopwatches, you know, saying, you know, this was, you know, 0.5 seconds, this was 0.27 seconds, you know, that kind of stuff. And where do you draw the line there? Um, I, I get really nervous about timings because they are by nature of, of, you know, practicality, uh, subjective. Sure. And I guess that's why I was pushing you about objectivity around it, but I think you were thinking of defining something objective regarding the, the yet undefined term of quoting that would have no mention of timing. Exactly. Right. I don't want, sure. I don't want a quizzers pausing to matter. Um, I don't. 
I, ideally, I don't even want a quiz master, you know, hiccuping and, you know, being a second or two late on a, on a, a query to be a deciding factor either. Although I don't, I can't think of a good way to fix that uh, right now. And, and may, there may not be a way to fix it. I mean, other, other than just, you know, more practice for quiz masters. Sure. I really don't think there's a way to objectively define that, but I think there is a way that you could, um, state the requirement in a non-objective manner, but in a way that requires precision from the quiz master and would not be grounds for a frivolous challenge. You know, like if you use a word like reasonable or, um, I don't know what else, but, um, you could also put in stuff saying that the quiz master should always just be prompting within a reasonable amount of time, whether the quizzer is continuing to speak or not. And if it's yeah. confusing to the if it's confusing to the quizzer, it's their fault that they're just like blitzing on in a situation or a reference question, right? Sure, but again, reasonable. You know what what is reasonable for me is not going to be reasonable for a quizzer, and vice versa, right? So, I mean, a quizzer's brain is is operating at a higher frequency than my brain, um, and and is you know they're 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 in the moment, they're hyper focused, the adrenaline's pumping time for them runs at a, at a different speed. Um, and so the, the idea of reasonableness is, is very, you know, um, general relativity is starting to come into play here. Sure. But I think that's why you have other captains and you have multiple officials at the table. I think a lot of that kind of comes out in the wash. If one, if one person's opinion is deviating from the rest. Fair enough. Fair enough. And going back to what you were saying about um, no challenges or zero marked questions, I think because of um, a smaller number of teams and a smaller semifinals and no consolations, that we are running um, less than half of the quizzes that we normally run for a given meet. So there's just far less opportunity for that stuff. That's very true. We are we are quizzing significantly less um, for a variety of reasons. I, I intentionally designed our virtual meets this year to be very light um, on brackets, to be very, very um, as short as possible on brackets because brackets eliminate teams. And what I don't want to have happen is, is teams sitting around being totally bored uh, for, you know, several hours waiting for finals. And I definitely appreciate the teams that are eliminated a little bit earlier in the brackets. I, I appreciate them very much, uh, their willingness to stick around and cheer on uh, the teams that are in finals and to watch the quizzing. That's, that's a, it's a very supportive thing. I know, you know, it can be really boring and annoying, you know, being on zoom and you're not getting the, the social experience. Um, but sticking around and watching that and supporting, you know, your fellow quizzers is a really great thing. Absolutely. Well, okay. So I know you're going to, this is another topic. I, I know you're what your answer is going to be, but I just want to throw it out there to just, you know, make sure everybody hears what Scott's opinion is on this, uh, because I agree with Scott's opinion. Actually, I, I'm, I'm 99% sure I know what Scott's opinion is going to be. And I agree with it if it is that opinion. So here we go. Um, I'll be, I'll make a statement and then you, you let me know if I'm right or wrong. The only time, the only, 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 only time that you can toss a question as a quiz master is if the question is invalid or you read it incorrectly, or there's a foul, uh, depending on the, uh, depending on the nature of the foul, uh, of course, is that statement true? I would say like 99% of the time there are random times where there is some like disturbance or, 
um, equipment malfunction or something. So those wouldn't fall under invalid question, um, quizmaster read error, or a foul um, that I would throw out a question. Okay, yeah, that's true. That yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. But Su- other than those four, case. yeah, super corny case. But l- let's throw that in there. So in those four, those are basically the four scenarios where a quiz master could toss a question, but those are the only four uh, cases where a quiz master can toss a question. I can't think of any others, and I can state some extremely bad reasons to throw out questions that I've seen people do. (laughs) Please do. One is, I don't like this question. Um, That is not grounds to throw out a question, ever. Um, it It is in the question set, and you should have means to vet questions ahead of time, Mark questions that are maybe valid but terrible. But when you are asking a question in the quiz and it pops up there randomly, I don't think the quiz master should ever be saying, like, I don't think this is good. I know it's valid, but I don't think it's good, and I'm going to throw it out. Um, They should absolutely not do it after they have read the question or there has been any answering or ruling or anything. They should definitely not do it then. But even if it just pops up on their computer screen, they're like, "Ah, I don't think it's great. I think it's actually bad. Even then, I don't think they should be making the decision to throw that question out. Right. Now, I mean, there could be a scenario where a quiz master looks at a question, thinks that it's invalid, and then simply says, I don't like this question, right? So, I mean, I want to be fair, you know, a quiz master saying, I don't like this question may just be shorthand for, I think this question is invalid. I'm going to mark it and replace it with what I think is a valid question, right? Um, you know, the quiz master is not required to you know, perfectly articulate exactly what they're doing in that scenario. Although I think if they were to articulate a little bit better, so much the better. Um, but certainly if a quiz master looks at a question that they deem to be valid, but they just don't like it, then tough. You, you still have to use the question. Right. Um, now, one thing that I do as a quiz master that I wish I could avoid, but Sometimes a question will pop up. I'm going to use the example from Matthew 9.32 while they were going out. Let's say the the interrogative pops up while they were what on my screen. Now, in Matthew, this would be a reference question. But let's just hypothetically say while they were is a unique phrase. Well, oftentimes if I see that, I'm like, man, that's a super vague interrogative. And I'll like check it before I ask it. And then I'll like see, oh, it is a unique phrase. And then I'll ask it. Well, I don't really like doing that because it could be information to the quizzer, right? Every time Scott pauses and is obviously typing, it's a question that made him squint. And I want to jump slower on questions that make Scott squint, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's very true. And I do that. I, I hadn't thought about that, but that's, that's, that's something I do on occasion. A, a question will pop up and it'll be like, you know, in CBQZ, the, the, the question will be color coded and it'll be like one green word and an interrogative. And I'll be like, I don't see how that's a valid question. So then I'll look, uh, I'll, I'll go down and type the word in and sure enough, it's, it's a, it's a unique word or maybe it's not, well, it can't be a unique word because otherwise it'd be blue, but for whatever, whatever the context happens to be, it, it ends up being a, a valid question. And I'm like, oh, okay. It is valid. Right. Um, and it's like, yeah, I, I hate the fact that there's the pause there because it does give information out before I start reading the question. But at the same time, like, I don't 
I don't know how to fix that because I definitely want to check that it's valid before I start reciting the question. I think if you have a high degree of confidence in the question set as a whole, I think you should just ask the question without checking it. And then as soon as a jump happens, check it. That's true. Well, and and, and I mean, here we go. I'm going to brag about PNW's question set again. I, I think in with PNW's question set, I think we can have that level of confidence, but not all question sets are created equal. Uh, and if I was using a question set that Jeremy didn't orchestrate, my suspicion level would be, you know, non-trivially higher than it is right now. Perhaps. And I mean, your mileage may vary, but I've yeah. quizmastered a great West with Westcan set and CMD set. And, you know, you're finding and tossing out one to two invalid questions of meat. So it's like, I don't know. I think it's worth it to just give no extra information to the quizzers and just start reading it. Yeah, true. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. So uh, let's see. What's the next one here? Foul. If a quizzer's light comes on after a question. Oh, what was this? Sorry. Sorry. Going back to the only times a quiz master can toss a question. Yeah. Also important is the timing of tossing a question. So like if you are tossing a question because the question is invalid um, or I read the question wrong or there's a foul, the event that causes you to toss the question out should be the exact time that you are tossing the question out. So if I stumble on reading the question and I decide to just forge on and then a quizzer jumps and maybe gets it wrong and I'm like, you know what? I read that wrong. I'm going to throw it out. Like that's bad. Yeah, that should be a challenge. You know what happened. So like if I deem my verbal stumble to be enough to throw it out, I need to just stop reading and throw it out right then. And like I get that that's tough on a quiz master because you have to be deciding right at the instant something happens. Um, but otherwise, it is very like judgmentally gray through and right. through. You know the quizzer that jumped. You know the quiz scenario. You know the outcome often. Um, and it, it it just gets real murky real fast. Yeah, I totally agreed. Totally agreed. It's very tempting to do that. But yeah, I mean, if you stumble, uh, just toss it, uh, toss it out. I mean, there were a couple of times... Uh, this last meet where, uh, you know, I was reading a question and I had kind of a slight, not even a hiccup, but like a half hiccup on maybe one of the opening words. And there were quizzers who jumped and it was like, I didn't look at who jumped. Cause I was like, I hiccuped. I'm not comfortable with the cadence of that question. I'm tossing it, you know? Um, and if, you know, it's like, I, I have to do it immediately. I can't be like, well, three people jumped. Maybe it was enough to answer. So I'll pick the, you know, the first one who jumped and see what happens. It's like, no, I, I didn't say it clearly. Uh, it, it has to go. I have to start it over. And, you know, I'm like, mea copa, mea maxima copa. Sorry. Uh, let's do it again. Um, but it's like, you have to do it in that instant straight away. Yep. All right. So let's talk a little bit about fouls. Um, I'm reading my note here and I don't exactly... Oh, okay. So in the rule book, I, I think I remember this. This is more just sort of a, a Scott, you know, philosophy question. So in the rule book, uh, regarding fouls, the rule book uh, reads currently as follows. If a quizzer's light comes on after a question has been called and before the question has discernibly begun, and of course it doesn't say what that means, um, that is that is the definition of a an event that should be uh, called a foul. Do you think the same should apply in virtual quizzing? Um, I do, but I think the the difference is in in-person quizzing, 
almost every quiz master when the reading says question number four question and then kind of intakes a breath and then starts reading the question right mm-hmm. um maybe they don't take a breath but there's some short pause in there question number one question what is the name of yada yada they don't say question number one question what is the name of um that's i've seen that but it's pretty rare and so the distance between when the quizzer when quiz master is done um the rule book technically says calls question, um, but the end of that final word question and when they discernibly begin the, the actual question, um, that, that span is very small. Um, and so it's really almost 90% of the fouls I think called because of that are because a quizzer's light was just on throughout the whole preamble and remained on. Um, wh- but but it is, it's imprecise, Right. Because you're judging, like, did I start to make a mouth shape when this light came on, especially on super specialty type questions? Um, it is a like a pretty judgment call by the quiz master, which I think quiz masters can do very consistently, but it, there is still some amount of judgment um, there. In virtual, because there's the requirement, at least in PNW, for the quiz master to type something in the chat that in, es- in essence is the, st- the them calling question you kind of have a completely a black and white line. So if, if the quizzer's um, chat of jumping is after that, then award the jump. And if it's before, award a foul. But what that's incumbent on is the timing of the quiz master typing that into the chat. And if they're doing it as they start saying the word question, then they are kind of submitting a different reference point for fouls than you would have in in-person. Yeah, that's true. Um, although, is that a problem as long as the quiz master was consistent about it? Um, I don't think it would be a problem, per se. Um, I guess if one quiz master is a little bit early with that in virtual quizzing, it's just something that quizzers could figure out and take advantage of if the situation calls for it, right? If they want mm-hmm. a jump on basically zero information, which does arise, right, at times throughout a quiz year. Um, but I don't, as long, if the quiz master is being consistent, um, the downsides are almost completely limited. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think I think one of the things that I like about it being potentially different in virtual, and I'm not advocating we make a change here, um, really, because I... I I loathe making rule changes mid season and virtual is is virtual and and it's insufficiently awesome relative to in person. I don't want to be sort of chasing the tail on trying to Im- improve the last 1% of opportunity in virtual. I want to get rid of <laughs> I just want to get rid of virtual and go back to in person, but I mean obviously there's you know practical logistical considerations that are that abound significantly there. Um, well, let's move on to a second Scott, uh, philosophy question. Um, and I, we may have talked about this before, but it's been a while. If we have, should a quiz master interrupt a quizzer who is answering, who is clearly correct? So in other words, like, um, uh, the answer is stone. You say stone and some water and you keep you keep quoting, right? But you are clearly, clearly, unambiguously, objectively correct. Should the quiz master interrupt you? I think it is up to the quiz master, but whatever they do should come with clear communication, right? So 
let's say Quizzer's answering John 3.16 and it's for God so loved what? And the Quizzer says, for God so loved the world that they that he gave his one and only son. That who you know, I might not just jump in as a quiz question and be like, you're correct. I might just let them finish the verse. But then once they're done, or at least when they give me any kind of a pause, I will say, like, I only needed for God so loved the world. But I just, you know, you were quoting so well. You were correct. Because I don't want any potential later heirs of theirs to be gra- to for another team to think that they might have grounds to challenge. Because... The other team would be incorrect, but they would have been misled by my timing of ruling the quizzer correct. So I just make it clear what has happened. Right. Sure. Well, I mean, let's say they're quoting 316. They get world and then they go crazy out of context. Right. And you count them correct. Uh, It might be useful to say, well, you were correct after you said world. uh, And then you went out of context. So just be careful about that. You know, that, that kind of thing. I mean... But I mean, how much of that do you provide versus, because I mean, you're not wanting to shut down challenges and you're certainly not wanting to provide an explanation of a ruling to, you know, subvert the potential of a challenge. But in a, in a, in a case like this, it's so clear cut that there's no, there's no way you could challenge on it. Right. Yep. And because this isn't defined in the rule book as a quiz master, I say, Anything that I say along with my ruling is not like this explanation of the ruling. Because when the rulebook talks about it, it's all in terms of quizzers or coaches or someone asking for like extra explanation. And so to me, like however I want to rule and whatever amount of information I want to give, that's not like you requesting an explanation of the ruling. So I don't think anything a quiz master says initially can invalidate a challenge. And because of that, I want to give the quizzers the information, right? Um, I'm hiding nothing from you. I want you to know exactly why I ruled a certain way so that you know exactly how to challenge because all we're trying to do is get it right. This is not you versus me. Right, Um, exactly. And so when the rule book says no comment other than correct or incorrect need be announced by the quiz officials in making a decision, I mean, I think that's useful, right? Because it is setting a requirement for the quiz masters, for the for the quiz masters, but in the n- later versions of the rulebook, when we are planning to incorporate at least best practices, which would be things that everyone should do, but are not grounds for challenge, right? They're not a requirement in the rulebook. But I would say, like quiz masters should like try to give explanations of their rulings up front, right? And so if in your example, the quizzer says, "For God's love, the world," and then goes wildly out of context, I might cut them off. And I'll say, you were correct once you said world um, and make it clear to everyone that like, I know they went out of context and I have deemed that not to matter. And if you disagree with those applications of the rule book, you are welcome to challenge, but don't bother challenging on they went out of context and you didn't notice it. Right. Right. <laughs> because, right, right. Because I don't want to mislead someone to think that I didn't notice that and still made my ruling. Like, I want to make it clear. And then we can have a discussion over were they actually correct or did they actually go out of context before they were incorrect and, like, actual meat and potatoes part of the judgment side of ruling. <laughs> right, right. And this, this of course, relates to the whole concept of correct before incorrect and then the idea of, well, you know, what if the they said – world and well what's a good synonym for world um earth the whole earth i don't know um but the you know they they say a word that is you know a a plausibly reasonable uh uh 
synonym, but you don't count them correct at that point because you want to give them the full 30 to be able to correct, but then they go wildly out of context. And then it's like, well, you have to say, you almost have to sort of explain like the correct answer is world, but you said earth, but you can't, right? You, because like, if I, if I, cause I mean, the fact that they went out of context is not challengeable. Well, I mean, somebody could challenge, but I, I wouldn't consider it. But the fact that they said earth and not world, it's like, well, that could be challengeable, right? That's an, that's an interpretation of the synonym. So I don't want to explain necessarily that part and then invalidate the opportunity of a challenge. Right. And that's, that's the flip side that I haven't figured out a good way to deal with as a quiz master, because I have gotten feedback that the more information I'm giving on a judgment call, the more the quizzers feel like they have no grounds to challenge. Exactly. Right? And I, and I don't want that. I just want them to know like what my reasoning was. And I want them to like, I hope that they were like me as a quizzer who was like looking for every little way that I could possibly challenge, but that's not how most people are thinking. And so I just have to talk extemporaneously about it outside of a quiz, right. To make it clear to people, like, I, I really hope you challenge me and try to like contest how I've ruled if you think it's incorrect. Um, and so that, that is definitely the flip side. Yeah. Um, All right. Another thing, it, another thing is sometimes a quizzer will jump. Let's say I needed Jesus went down to Jerusalem. Quizzer will jump and say, Jesus went to Jerusalem and I will not make a ruling. And then at, they may say nothing else for the rest of their time. And then at the end of 30 seconds, I will say, you are correct. Which if I was a competing quizzer, I was like, well, if they weren't correct at four seconds and gave you zero additional information, why are they now <laughs> right at 30 seconds? Right. right. And, it, and it's because if at any point they say Jesus went down to Jerusalem, you're 100% correct. Like, no opportunity for challenge, anything, yada, yada. But I still might think you were correct enough, but um, I don't want to leave open the possibility of a challenge because I cut you off before your 30 seconds. Exactly. Exactly. And, and so, like, that's some, a real finer point that I think can confuse other teams when they're like, you know, they gave you – an amount of information you didn't rule 20 seconds later, they went wildly out of context. And then at the end of 30 seconds, you ruled them incorrect. Like what happened? And I was like, I was just thinking the whole time about the first phrase that they said, and was it enough? And then given enough time, I was like, you know what? It was enough. Uh, and so I will often say that in my ruling, I was like, I was thinking about it, but when you said Jesus went to Jerusalem, I have deemed that to be, um, correct. And I will always try to say language like, not you are correct. I will say like, I have made the ruling <laughs> that you are correct, which is almost like a wink, wink to everyone. Like, please challenge if you think differently. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, uh, quiz masters will throw all kinds of hints about like, now would be a great time to challenge. Oh yeah. Like the, the three to four second pause that you never do at the end of questions but now scott and griffin are just randomly doing it it's like yeah because we want to give you the opportunity to challenge because this was a sketchy oh, ruling or not a sketchy that's ruling. so true that is my number one tell it's like if if i say correct and then there's this awkward three second pause before i pull up the next question it's like a hundred percent of quizzers and coaches should be like, he was expecting a challenge. He was, he was kind of, he was throwing out the opportunity. It's like a giant red banner of, of now's the time to challenge. And I've seen quizzers like when, as soon as the ruling happens, you see it in their face, they like have an inkling. And then with each additional second that I wait, they're like, I should do it. Right. But if I just mm -hmm. like forged ahead, they would just be like, eh, you know, because they weren't confident enough 
like initially. And so like, right. I want you to like feel empowered to just give the challenge and let's talk about it. Like that's a fun thing to do. Yeah, totally. All right. Well, we have been hinting about this uh, for a bit, but we should talk a bit about the rulebook reorg project. Um, so uh, this is very exciting. And of course we're opening up this project really to anybody to be a, an observer in and even potentially a contributor if you wanted to. But essentially, there's uh, four folks, uh, Zachary Tinker, uh, Scott, Jeremy, and myself, who have uh, undergone over the past, I don't know, what has been six months or something like that. We have uh, gone through the current rulebook, the 2018 rulebook, and we have done a rather non-trivial, actually, it's a significantly... <laughs> non-trivial uh rewrite of the project and i should i should be careful about using the word rewrite we did do a like massive level of rewriting and reorganization and restructuring and grammar and syntax and formatting and all kinds of other stuff but in the course of doing this massive overhaul of the project, we have come up with what we think is a rulebook in the, what we're calling version one that is functionally equivalent to the current rulebook, meaning that if you use it uh, and somebody else is using the 2018 rulebook, theoretically, an observer, a quizzer, a coach shouldn't be able to tell which one is which. You know, so if, if Scott is using the new, new rulebook and I'm using the old rulebook, uh, and you're watching both of his Quizmaster, you theoretically shouldn't be able to tell, you know, which one of us is using which version. That's what we mean by functional equivalence. Now, we haven't gotten that 100% perfect because we've uncovered, you know, lots of sort of self-contradictory uh, statements within the older rulebook, that kind of thing. So we've had to sort a lot of that stuff out. But essentially, 99% of the time, you basically won't be able to tell the difference. Um, so what's the status of this project? So right now, the projects, uh, the project team's work is complete. Uh, so Scott and I and Jeremy and Zachary are done in terms of our, you know, pretty much daily many hours of, of collaboration uh, in Slack and, and calls and, and so forth to sort out stuff. That work is done. And we have a, uh, a version one proposed, I guess, rulebook. And that is currently sitting with the CQLT. They are currently in review and they are working on approving it. And then once they approve it, it will then go out for uh, to the districts for ratification. So this is where uh, district coordinators will be brought into the loop and officially uh, asked to review uh, the the V1 of this uh, functional equivalent rule book. Um, however, districts, uh, district coordinators and anybody really in any district doesn't have to wait for that ratification step. You can actually look at the rule book, uh, the new rule book right now, if you wanted to and parse through it and, and see if you can find some bugs, uh, see if you can find anything that, that we missed. Um, if you're at all interested in this, uh, I recommend going to GitHub and doing a search for quizzing dash rule dash book. And you should, that should be the first project that pops up on the search results list and uh, give that a, a, a read through, uh, you know, the readme uh, will direct you to where you can find the, the build files and so forth and be able to read through the content and, and you can file, you know, tickets if you want to against it, uh, you know, send us feedback either to the show IQ at cbqz.org or via GitHub or, you know, Scott and I directly or, or really anybody on, on the, on the project team uh, that would, that would be fine. One of the really cool big 
changes uh, that are that's part of this rulebook. And really, I, I mean, Scott, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think it's really the only practical difference uh, between this rulebook and the 2018 rulebook is the uh, change management process. And before I explain that, do you agree? Is there... Uh, you know, in terms of of functional difference, that's really the only big thing, right? Yeah, I think it's. Um, I think you're right. It is the change management. There's some techie things that might be fun to be able to do with it that we can now that it's in GitHub. But those are kind of like uh, treats or candy on the side, right? It's not the the main course. So I think it is change management, and this is related to change management, but. Um, Previously, any changes, you kind of had to rely on them being correctly highlighted in there, whereas now any changes, um, because it's GitHub and GitHub is made to manage, um, I guess, code, but in this case, it's just text, um, but it doesn't really make any difference to GitHub. It will clearly show you what all of the changes were in complete perfection, <laughs> um, and so that's going to be nice between versions of the rulebook um, you will you can have a hundred percent confidence that you are seeing what the exact changes are. Yeah, yeah. Well, so the change management process itself um, that's being proposed as part of this V one rewrite uh, is remarkably different than what we've done in the past in terms of rulebook changes. So in the past, if you had a particular rulebook change proposal, you would essentially need to share that proposal with one or more people on the CQLT and have the CQLT sort of champion that change to the rest of the CQLT. They would debate it and work on it, and then uh, they would vote that in or not. And there was, you know, in you know, recently the, those sort of changes have been communicated fairly effectively, but that has not always been the case. Um, there have been times where it has, uh, you know, changes and the rationale behind those changes and the reasoning and agreeing or disagreeing or, or, or whatnot, that hasn't been a fairly transparent process. That hasn't been a, a, a there hasn't been a way to conduct that in such a way that let's say, you know, somebody from one district has an idea they propose to the CQLT. I, being from a different district, uh, wouldn't hear about this idea until it's actually, you know, fully integrated necessarily and approved into the rulebook. And so what we wanted to do as part of, you know, the value gains uh, for doing this project was to make all future changes to the rulebook uh, be as trans transparent as possible. So in this version one, like I said, we tried to be as functionally equivalent as we absolutely possibly could, right? Uh, there were some areas where we had to sort of shave off corners a little bit uh, because of bugs, but generally we, we tried to be as close as possible to functional equivalence in everything that we did. Going forward, though, the, I, the, the goal is not to stay with functional equivalence, but to have the flexibility within this rulebook framework to be able to make changes, but those changes are not going to be ad hoc changes done, you know, without a full level of transparency because everything's in GitHub. Uh, there is a full process uh, articulated out in the change management process. That's part of the rule book. It's the last section of the rule book that explains, 
you know, anybody can come up with an idea. Anybody can submit it. There's a rule book committee that reviews it and makes comments on it. There can be some back and forth. There's a, uh, there's a, there's a technical process that parallels the communicational process. And ultimately at the end of the day, it still goes to the, to the CQLT for ratification, uh, each, each annual cycle, but all of that sort of communication becomes transparent. And because of, of GitHub, it's documented in perpetuity. And it means anybody that's interested in getting a heads up about discussions or topics that may be discussed for future changes in the rulebook, anybody who wants to can subscribe to notifications about those things via the GitHub interface and be able to hear all kinds of stuff in real time as the discussion is happening. And if you want to participate in that discussion. Yeah. And I think that's the best thing is it's just out there, right? Anyone can submit a proposal. Anyone can view submitted proposals and add their thoughts and feedback. And it's just a really nice structured way to um, manage a rule book for everyone. I think in the past, um, the main way of discussion was at internationals. So if you weren't present, you didn't get to discuss it. Um, that was definitely more of a logistical choice than a desire to exclude anyone. But this, this way, um, makes it so that anyone can participate who wants to, which is awesome. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, we are a little bit over time, but I really want to, you know, slip this into the schedule uh, here. We had a proposed, well, it's not really a rule book change. I mean, it, it could potentially end up becoming a rule book change, but a, a, a member of our district proposed what he calls the hot streak scoring formula or scoring mechanism, I guess, uh, is a way to say it. It's a sort of a tweak on how scoring works that may be fairly useful in incentivizing some of the more strategic areas of jumping in terms of jumping speed and so forth and reducing errors. So Scott, do you want to do like a, I don't know, a, a 15,000 foot view of what hot streak is, and then we can kind of dive into the details? Sure. So hopefully I don't misrepresent it, but in summary, it is... Um, providing scoring incentives or disincentives by by virtue of streaks. And the streaks could be um, a particular team getting questions correct in a row, like say questions 7, 8, 9, and 10. Or it could just be a particular team getting questions correct in a row without an error. So it doesn't have to be 7, 8, 9, 10, but it could be 5, 8, 11, 12, 15, as long as they don't make an error in between. Um, and And... Various scoring mechanisms could be introduced, right? Like um, every third one increments your correct question points by 10. So the third correct is plus 30 instead of plus 20. And if you keep the streak going, the sixth one is going to be plus 30. And then each sub subsequent correct would be plus 30 um, as long as you keep that streak without erring. And then on the downside... Um, if you have three errors in a row, maybe that third error is negative 20. And if you have six errors in a row, maybe that sixth error is negative 30. And again, that would only be if you have all of those without an incorrect in between. If, you, if you're on a streak of correct and you have one correct, it resets you back to the defaults, which is 20 points for a correct. And on the flip side, if you have a bunch of errors, but then you get a correct one, it resets the defaults back to um, you know, how we do negative points normally. There are other ways to do it because that's kind of a linear way where it, it bumps up by 
10 or 20 point inc- bumps up or down by 10 or 20 point increments. But you could also say every X correct questions or incorrect in a streak, you multiply the points by 1.25 and then round to the nearest 10th. And then if they keep the streak going next time you multiply that, those points by 1.25. And so it would increase, um, faster if you kept that streak going or decrease faster if you kept that streak going. And so all of it is kind of just these, these, prods through scoring to encourage higher accuracy um and i don't know if you want to comment on it griffin before i comment other implications and ideas that i have no not really um why don't you get your ideas first um i think your ideas are going to be a little bit more informed than mine i mean i i really wanted to dig into this at a very detailed level before we talked about it, but I, I ran out of time. So I've only uh, just read over it in a, at a cursory level. My general opinion is very positive, but I am concerned about sort of unintended consequences, but why don't you kind of talk about your thoughts about it and then let's, let's dive in. So I think in general, no one really needs an incentive for higher accuracy because we all want to score a lot, Right. Um, and it's difficult to consistently score a lot where I see that we might need incentives or rather disincentives is to doing poorly because in a quiz, if I, if I'm at a hundred points, really every correct question I get after that is going to be plus two team points, right? I just keep adding on, adding on, adding on. But once I'm below, um, 30 points as a team, errors have no negative impact to me because I can't go below one team point. And so oftentimes, if a team is in that situation, the way that they deal with it, you could say try to get out of it, but really they are realizing that they don't have a downside and they might as well just jump faster than they otherwise would. So they're basically saying, I'm going to jump at what is an imprudent speed because I don't have a downside. Now, if you introduce these kind of streaks things, um, there would be more of a downside. Now, I guess if a, if a team is already below 30, then decreasing faster below 30 is not really a downside, which is why I kind of would love to see um, first and second place points treated just as we do now, but third place points not be downside ca- downside limited. So if you score negative 60 in a quiz, you get negative 17 points. Ooh, um, ouch, really? Absolutely. So like, and, like you could, you could actually, a, a, a quiz, you could actually walk away deducting from your overall team summary score then. Absolutely. Because if a team has an uncharacteristically yeah. good quiz, it could set them up for four or five middling quizzes. Similarly, if you have an awful quiz, I think it, it, it should have the same impact. Um, hmm. Especially because what I perceive is when teams don't have that downside risk, they jump in a way that hurts everybody because they don't and like i'm not saying that these teams are intentionally trying to screw over the other teams but basically at that point they don't care who they bring down with them because they just like errors additional errors don't affect them right and like everyone does this like don't get me wrong if i was coaching a team and we had below 30 points in like an internationals prelim i'd be like we might as well just try to win every jump here on out and hope we get a bunch right because we can't go lower than we're at right now, right? And I would know, right. like, doing that basically prevents the other teams from scoring, right? They will probably get some bonuses, but 
they can't get third, fourth, fifth, fifth person bonuses. They can't quiz out with that error. They can't get 20 point correct question. Like it just massively limits the scoring ability of the other teams who are basically playing it straight up because they have downside risk. And so if there are mechanisms in place to limit downside risk, I like it. And so other mechanisms I've thought of are a quizzer airing out of a meet, right? And I would put really stringent um, requirements so that it is invoked almost never. But like, let's say for internationals, I say once a quizzer has won 12 jumps over the course of the meet, if their overall accuracy is below 30%, they have aired out of the meet. And I bet you if, wow. you, went through, yeah. if you went through history, it almost never happens, right? Because like, it, I bet you you almost never see quizzers under 30, 35% accuracy. And even if it is, it's because they were, went like one for three one for four or something. It's not like quizzers who have won 15 jumps in prelims. And so like, mm -hmm. but if a quizzer is winning that many jumps at that terrible of an accuracy, it's indicative of a speed that's just imprudent and hurting everybody else. And so like, I want that specific action to be disincentivized. And okay, so like, yeah. those are just my ideas around various scoring things. I think they're most applicable at the like inter-district kind of Great West to internationals, internationals level. Because to me, at the district level, your top three quizzers and a quiz are winning two-thirds to three-quarters of the jumps anyway. Your top six quizzers are winning 90% of the jumps. And so like, if we're like creating this streak to like maybe try to have quizzers three, four, and five get in there with the correct question that's worth 30 or 40 points or up the third, fourth, fifth, fifth person bonuses, I don't know how much that's changing everyone's strategy approaching a quiz. And so that's why I think the either removing... Um, the downside points limit for a team or having an individual error out of a meet are more to invoke because it's not going to affect third, fourth, fifth quizzers at the district or probably at internationals. Like those quizzers are never going to win enough jumps to even be in the running to air out of the meet, which is like exactly what we want, right? We don't want a rookie who wins three jumps a meet to worry <laughs> about airing out of a meet. Um, and so you would set the limit so that they never have to worry about it. Um, so I think there are little things that you can toy with, but really at the end of the day, it's, I don't like it when a quizzer or a team has no downside repercussions from jumping what I'm deeming to be too fast. Yeah. Yeah. Understandable. So do you think, I mean, we talked a little bit about this, you know, before we started, uh, recording, um, one comment that I had about this is, is looking through this proposal, I want to experiment with it. It's it's like it needs to be play tested a lot so that we can kind of tease out what 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 is this actually going to do. We can make hypotheses and so forth, but I, I think we need to test the hypotheses. Um, but sort of one of the the takeaways that I had from reading this or skimming it was the idea that I didn't see any downside to implementing this. Um, but you had a very interesting comment about what could be a downside. And that was overcomplication of the rules for the average quizzer. So at the moment, scoring rules are fairly straightforward. This would not make those rules fairly straightforward. Um, it would be very difficult for a quizzer to, you know, in the moment, unless they were, you know, a, you know, a, let's say a great Western internationals bound quizzer who, who really studied 
you know, hot streak or something, it would, for the average quizzer, it might be difficult to figure out like, well, wait a minute, where are we at? And how much is, is getting this correct or incorrect worth? And how much do I factor that into my jump speed in this particular question? You know, that, that can be a lot of information to process within the, you know, couple of seconds between questions, right? Um, so do you consider that to be a downside of potentially implementing this at the district level? Um, I think so. And like, I definitely think that it is important for people to know the rules and like know it so well that they can just bring it up mentally, whether it's a quiz or a captain, a coach, but I don't think it's the worst thing to have like a visible scoreboard that has the overall score, but also shows, um, what the point value would be of a correct and an incorrect for every quizzer on a team. Right. Cause it mm, could be 20, okay. it could be 30, it could be negative 10, could be zero. Right. I think that that is a useful thing that I don't feel necessary to make everyone memorize the rules to know in every given situation. Like, I don't think we need to be competing about that per se. So if they just saw it in front of them, like, oh, if Scott gets the next one right, he gets 50. But if Griffin gets the next one right, he gets 20. And it's just there, you know, on a scoreboard. Then it's just like information to everyone. And, it, you know, I, I guess quizzing is little more complicated in scoring it's not like in baseball or football anyone needs that sort of thing because the point values aren't context specific the way that they are in quizzing right right um but i guess like in i guess in um in the nfl in national football league you have each team has a number of challenge i guess you have a number of timeouts and challenges and like the number of timeouts is clearly shown to everyone and so you know like you just look at a glance you're like oh i've got one left do I want to use it, right? That's information to you that you don't have to remember. <laughs> um, and I, I think contextual specific point values in quizzing is treated very similarly. Yeah. Well, any other thoughts? Um, where do you think we should go with hot streak? I don't know. I think it's useful for people to talk about um, the impacts that they see of scoring, right? Um, and like, how do they see it manifested? Because I've talked at length about XYZs and so how I think the incentives are totally out of whack for teams 10 through 15 because they don't have a downside. They're already out of semis. <laughs> the only changes they could get into semis. So why not win a ton of jumps at a really fast speed? And I see the exact same thing for teams below 30 points or for um, quizzers that know they don't know very much material. They're like, well, I might as well just jump a lot and hope I get lucky on jumps. And that's like not, that's not useful for anyone. Like that's, we, do, we don't want to encourage that sort of action. Um, but I'm curious if people have similar thoughts or um, opposing thoughts on that, or if they see other things. Like, I think I've witnessed people be very risk averse. So they're like, oh, I, I've already been overruled on a challenge once this quiz. So like, I don't want to challenge again. I could lose 10 points. And I'm like, if you think you're right, like you could gain probably 20 points. Like, w why are you letting a potential loss of 10 points deter you from doing something? Right? Like, um, or even jumping. It's like, oh, I'm Scott. I've got one error, and I know that my next error is negative 10. Well, like, a correct question is 20 points. So, like, as long as you think your chances of if you win a jump at this speed, like, your chances are decent of getting it right, like, don't worry that some percentage of the time you will get it wrong and lose 10 points. Like, And so um, it could be that we want to just ditch um, negative points for overruled challenges because um, – if people are being super frivolous with challenges, like that might be why there's negative points. But if people are being super frivolous, they can be fouled by the officials, right? So like right, I don't right. I don't really worry about people being frivolous with challenges because 
they don't lose points when they get overruled a bunch. Like I just, I would want to encourage challenges. Um, but it just, it, it shows how every point value that we select has an impact, you know? So if people think like, oh yeah, I like the 10, 20, 30 point bonuses for third, fourth, and fifth, because it's so rare for people to get a fifth person bonus. We should really reward it and encourage teams working with all of their four or five quizzers to make them all, you know, uh, memorize more verses. Um, so I think those sorts of discussions can be really useful. Whatever we end up with at the end can be fun for um, districts to implement or for churches to implement for practice or for um, like PNW could implement it at a Great West practice or something. Like there are lots of fun testing grounds for it. Um, but I just, I think the discussions are useful, right? Are the point values and the contextual point values encouraging behavior that we want to encourage? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, and on that bombshell, we should close out our episode. We would love to hear from you. If you, uh, you know, have any sort of comments about anything that we have said in this or any previous episode, uh, we would especially like to hear from you. If you disagree with us on anything, uh, that we like being challenged, uh, both, you know, in quiz meets, uh, but also outside of quiz meets. So challenge our ideas. We'd like to hear your different points of view. Uh, please email us at IQ at CBQZ.org. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our uh, Twitter account is at inside quizzing. If you are on the Bible quizzing Slack forum, and if you're not, you should be, uh, you can chat with us in kind of quasi real time in the pound inside dash quizzing uh, forum or, or board or whatever it's called. And with that, I will say thank you. All, uh, thank you all for listening. And thank you, Scott. Thank you all for listening.